Hey, how's it going? This is Evan Jackson, video production director of New Life Church. Thank you so much for joining us for our podcast today. It's our goal to help you grow in your faith and discover all that God has for you. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and inspired today. Enjoy the message. I like sports metaphors. How many people are sports? People like sports. Some people are like, I could care less about, don't go into the sports metaphors. I like sports metaphors. And I used to coach basketball. And I've said that, I've told the people this before, but I feel like church on Sunday morning is like a 30-second timeout. A 30-second timeout. You know what? A 30-second timeout is not good for much in a basketball game. It's a long game. What it is, it's an opportunity. There's no strategy. It's just the coach going, let's go. We can do this. You're tired. The game is long. We, we, it's, it's, it's a boost of adrenaline, right? Right? It doesn't really do anything, but when they get out there, man, that 30-second timeout made a big difference in their gameplay. This is what church on Sunday, this is what Sunday morning worship service is. Because this is not church, by the way. You are. You're the church. This is not, this is, this is a 30-second timeout for us to kind of get together in a huddle and go, you can do it. And the Holy Spirit is the coach, not me. And he's going to infuse you with energy for the week. Because I'm telling you, this is not only church. This is a worship service. But this is, this is not the game. When you get out there, that's the game. That's the game of life. And this 30-second timeout, man, I want to give you some stuff. We're going to pack this 30-second timeout with some great stuff so that you can get on Monday morning, you can get back in the game, and you can be winning for Christ. Okay? So that's the point of, I, you know, it's, it's kind of a trivial way to, you know, bring Sunday mornings down to. But I really feel like that's a good analogy. The fact that, you know, we only get a few, an hour or so together on a weekend. That's why I believe that the church service on a weekend is vitally important to the church. Because it's that infusion of just camaraderie. We're together. You're not alone in this game. You got other players that are, move, are moving in the same direction as you are, and we get a chance to just enjoy the coach. Jason knows exactly what I'm talking about. I used to coach him. He's like, whoa, those 30-second timeouts. Yeah. <laughs> so today we're going to start a new series called How to Read the Bible, and it's kind of a, a plain Jane title. It's not creative. It's just what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks, okay? And much of the information has come out of this book if you're interested in reading books. I like books that actually have pages to them. That's how I do things. I read books with pages. Um, Because I like to write in my books, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in this series, how it's good to take notes. Um, But anyway, this is from this book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And this is an excellent book. It's pretty dry. Just going to let you know. So I'm going to try to see how it's gray and white, but this is bright yellow. I'm going to try to bring this up for you today, okay? So the next four weeks, this is a foundation series. This whole year, we're taking time out of our preaching schedule. Not time out, but we are moving in the direction of just foundations of the faith. So we're going to be, we've done um, the, the, the Ten Commandments was a foundation series. We're doing this series on how to read the Bible. Later on in the year, we're going to uh, do a series on how to, how to pray. That'll be a good one. And I got another great book that I'll be dissecting for you on that one. And then 
we spatter in some Old Testament, New Testament series, but this one is a four-week Foundations of the Faith sermon series and will hopefully encourage you to explore God's Word and equip you for the basic hermeneutical principles that will help you engage with Scripture and correctly interpret its texts. Do you know that the Bible needs to be interpreted correctly? It just, it just doesn't say whatever you want it to say, right? It's good to have good principles. So in this series, we'll cover topics such as Jesus as the Word of God, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Scripture as God-breathed, and the Bible as a book that is living and active. Today's message is entitled, The Best Translation. The Best Translation. And the big idea is this. God wants us to have the best translation of his nature and person. So translations, let's just talk, we're going to do a little bit of an academic dig into translations, okay? We have today a translation, the Bible you're holding in your hand or you're swiping with your finger, is a translation of an ancient text, text, I have a hard time saying that, it's a translation of that writing. It is not the actual writing, it's a translation And most of our translations currently are based on copies of the original. Does that make sense? Okay, just so you know. So there's a bunch of different translations out there that you can read. So let's talk about why there are so many translations. Well, uh, let's just give you, for example, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Okay, that's one verse in the Bible. So I'm going to read it to you in multiple translations, and you're going to see something here. First, out of the CSB. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. That's a translation of the, of the copy of the original that is Isaiah. Now, in the NIV, you're going to see it look this way. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. So now we've got sickness, and we've got pain translated in two different translations. The ESV says it this way. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Like, Pastor, you're not really inspiring a whole lot of confidence. The uh, King James, New King James Version says this. Surely he has borne our griefs. Oh, we have a correlation here. And carried our sorrows. And then... This is just for Michael. The Amplified puts it this way. He needs his own slide because it's so big. Surely he has borne our griefs, which is, in other words, sicknesses, weaknesses, and distresses, and carried our sorrows and pains of punishment. See, the Amplified does it. Now, what is the Amplified trying to do? It's trying to give you all the different options. So go to the next slide. This is the word. Next slide. There we go. That's the Hebrew word in Isaiah, that little squiggle thingy. Okay? And it's pronounced holy. Okay? I, I actually listened to the, I had to push the button to get the guy to dictate it to me because I don't know what that. But that's how it's pronounced. And it's a masculine noun, and it's used in the Bible multiple times. Twelve times it's translated sickness. Seven times it's translated disease. 
Four times it's translated grief, and one time it's translated just sick. Why is it translated all these different ways? Because the context of what the author is saying dictates how it's used. See, Hebrew and English don't directly, they don't directly translate to each other. So you have different types of translations that see the text as a whole in its original language, and then they do their best to give us an accurate translation. Let me read a little bit about the science of translation from how to read the Bible for all it's worth. There are two kinds of choices that translators must make, textual and linguistic. The first kind has to do with the actual wording of the original text. The second has to do with the translator's theory of the translation that underlies the rendering of the text into English. Like, I didn't realize I was going to class today. Trust me, it gets more spiritual later. Okay. (laughs) Textual choices involve sifting through all the available materials to compare the places where the manuscripts differ. So here's the thing. We have all these manuscripts. Now, manuscript is a copy of an original that we call them manuscripts. And many of them are very, very early. Okay? And those manuscripts are translated. So what the, what the uh, contemporary translators do is they layer the manuscripts on top of each other. And they say, how did these early translations translate this? Because who am I? 2,000 plus years later to say it should mean something else. I want to know what the earliest readers of this got. So they put them all together and they, they decipher what is the best, best translation that goes into English. Okay? Um, to compare the places where the manuscripts differ, these are called variants. And determine which of the variants represents uh, errors and which is the most likely represents the original text. Now listen to this. Remarkably, The ancient manuscripts that we have of the Bible are so consistent. I picked one that was like, you know, there's some variation so you can see the differences. But the early manuscripts of of the Bible are so consistent that they're more reliable than any other ancient text. Like, think about the, the Iliad. There's variants all over that book from the early text. What we have today, we have no idea if it's exactly the way... If it's close to what was there. The Bible has so many corroborating manuscripts that it's so, it's the most reliable ancient text ever. Why? Why is it so reliable? Because the people knew it was more than just a book. It was more than just a history. This book was important because it was the word of, they, they believed and I believe it was the word of God. So it was very painstakingly translated and moved forward through the years. I mean, so much so that some of the uh, monks uh, that were translating, if they, oh man, if they like fell asleep a little bit, you know, because they would sit there, that's their whole day, right? Just, if they, if they made a mistake, or a drop of their ink made a word, like the, the, the dot on it made a word, throw it in the fire, start again. It was that sacred to them. I think we have a problem with our current Bible, and it's not the translation. Our problem with the current Bible is that we can get it at the dollar store. It's not special to us anymore. 
I have like 19 in my office. And then I don't even need them because it's all online now. I mean, we, we, it's, it's so readily, when, when the printing press came out and these things were being, being put out, it was like the most prized possession a family could have. We've lost a little, I think we've lost a little bit of that specialness because it's so readily available to us. Familiarity breeds contempt. I remember I had a, a, a Sunday school teacher who, I think, I think this is common among Sunday school teachers back in the day. There was this thing that she would never allow you to put your Bible on the floor. You know, there was nowhere to put it. I mean, we're in chairs, folding chairs. So when we weren't using it, what do, what do you do with it? You, you don't put it on the floor is the answer. You don't put it on the floor because if you did, David, get that off the floor. That's the Bible. That's the holy word of God. You don't put that on the floor. Yes, ma'am. Yes, 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 ma'am. I mean, but, but think about it for a second. She's not, I mean, she has a, a sense of value for the word of God that now I have because she banged it into me. And we need to have a better, a better understanding of the value of the, not the book itself, but what it represents and who it is that is talking, all right? Now, this consistency in the early text to late text was, was under debate until discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, these were well-preserved copies of Isaiah uh, found among the Dead Sea. There was a well-preserved copy of Isaiah, which is an old book, found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and has demonstrated that the messianic tradition, excuse me, Masoretic tradition, has carefully preserved very ancient texts. So what we had before the Dead Sea Scrolls was early, right? But then some kid threw a rock into a cave and broke a bunch of pottery where they found these really, really, really old versions of the same books that we had and they like, they lined up almost perfectly. It's pretty cool. That's how most archaeology is done, by the way, not like with a guy with a whip. It's usually somebody throwing a rock somewhere and cracking something. That's, all right? So, what, have, uh, what we have in our modern translations falls into three basic categories. We're talking about the second section now. We have the linguistic side, and then we have the, the concept of how do we translate from a, 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 a Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic into the modern language. And this falls into three different places. First is the formal equivalent. The attempt to keep as close to the form that he, of the Hebrew and Greek, both words and grammar, as can be conveniently put into understandable English. You'll see this in like the, the King James Version. You'll see this in the NASB and even to, so this is on a spectrum. So you'll see like King James Version, NASB, ESV. ESV uses a much uh, more, what's the word, uh, formal equivalent. Now, English, ESV is the English Standard Version. That's the, that's the version I use to study with. Um, I, I like it because it, it keeps close to the form of the early language, and, but it also gives you like a lot of things that you can look at to see, like, why did they say this? It gives you, like, links and, and, and footnotes and all this stuff. That's what I use for study. But 
it has its drawbacks. Why? Because reading it out loud can get very cumbersome. Because it's such, it can be kind of stilted by the original language. So the next type of equivalent is the functional equivalent. The attempt to keep the meaning of the Hebrew or Greek, but to put their words and idioms into what we would be, uh, would be normal way of saying things in the modern English. Okay? So it's kind of like, it says, this is what the text says in words, but this is what they're trying to convey. So I'm going to give you that. So that would be represented under the CSB, NIV, and NLT. So this is in graduating levels. CSB is closer to formal, but it's in the functional. And the NLT is much closer to the next, uh, next version. Okay? And then the last way of translating is the free translation, which just makes you can say whatever the, you want it to say. No, that's not what it is. The attempt to translate ideas from one language to another. Forget the words. What is the, what are they, what is the idea? With less concern about using the exact words of the language. These are sometimes called paraphrases. So that would be like the living Bible and the message. Um, my dad got saved with a living Bible in his hands. So it's possible. Okay, it's possible. The message, I don't know, no, no, my dad, I mean, I just had my dad's living Bible rebound, because it's got all his notes in it, and I just got it rebound, it's got a way of remembering him and his study times and things like that, it, I got it bound in leather, when it gets here, I'll show it to you, it's going to be beautiful, but um, it's a living Bible. So what do we do with this, like, great pastor, thank you for that dissertation on translations, what do I do with it? How do we know what translation to read? Let me, just, let me just, off the top, let me just say something. Get a Bible and read it. Now, there are better translations than others. But the Holy Spirit is not going to be thwarted because you picked up the message instead of the King James. You hear what I'm saying? But there's some standards here. It is a good practice to regularly read one main translation. Pick one. I use the ESV for my study, my devotions, and things like that. But I preach out of the CSB. Why do I do that? Because it just reads better. And it's very similar to the ESV. And it's, and it's where it gets this information. So that's how I, I preach out of that. And I study out of the ESV because it has a lot of good notes. Okay. Also, if you are using one of the better translations, it will have notes in it, in the margins, and many of the places where there are difficulties. So they'll give you more information. Everything is online. There is no excuse. So what's the best translation? What's the best? That's the, name of the, that's the title of the message, the best translation. I've been paid, sponsored by a certain, no, by Zondervan to tell you that, <laughs> it's probably a bad idea. Uh, I'll give it all to missions, I promise. Uh, the holy grail of translation is to combine the accuracy of the formal equivalent and the clarity of the free translation. That would be, that would be the holy grail. No one has ever done it. Or have they? 
See, God reveals himself to humanity through two primary means, words and actions. In the Bible, both of these mediums are, uh, of revelation work together and are interconnected. For example, God has revealed himself in human history through his mighty deeds and works. And these actions have been recorded and written down in Scripture, which we've already asserted is, is highly reliable. God also speaks directly to and through prophets in the Bible. So there's actions, and then there's word, which is uh, documented in words within the canon of Scripture. But even Scripture was not enough to fully reveal God to us, as John alludes in the end of his gospel. In, 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 a, in the end of John's gospel, he makes this really inc- incredible claim about Jesus. John 21, 25 says this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So many people have a hard time. Well, why is there four Gospels? Why are there four, why are there four Gospels? Why is there just one Gospel? John just answered that. Yeah. There could be 900 Gospels, and it wouldn't fill everything that Jesus did in his life. We only get four. We only get four. So there are many different mediums in, of human communication in the modern world. And I think this has also diminished the power of words. There's so many words out there. And things that were words but now are like not words like, like LOL and they mean words but they're not words. Like we've just cheapened words, right? I think so. There's physical mail. What is that? Anybody ever get a letter in the mail? I'm like, whoa. Somebody actually got a pen out and had to put a little sticker on the front of it? And had to walk it to a mailbox? Like, it's, a, it's crazy. So there's physical mail, there's email, phone calls, voicemail, voice messaging, text messaging, social media communication. It is commonly understood, however, that the old-fashioned, face-to-face, in-person communication is still the most effective. Sorry, kids. Now, during the pandemic, many companies opted for work-from-home or hybrid work models that kept large gatherings of people uh, at bay, and thus the spread of COVID, to a minimum. As cases and hospitalization rates fell, companies like Disney, the juggernaut, look to bring staff back to the offices and return to a more normalized pre-pandemic work environment. Why? Well, this email from Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, stressed the importance of in-person collaboration. Let me read what he said. In a creative business like ours, nothing can replace the ability to connect, observe, and create with peers that come from being physically together nor the opportunity to grow professionally by learning from leaders and mentors. That is why I am so excited to see so many of you in this building today. You could have watched online, but there's just something missing. There's just something missing when we are not in geographical proximity to one another. It's just something missing. We, we learn 
from being around people so much better than being isolated. So what's the best translation? Similarly, God, God's face-to-face, in-person revelation of himself to us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ was the greatest and clearest revelation of himself. Jesus said, I got to give them the best translation of God. I'm going to go and I'm going to have a face-to-face with them. Jesus is the best translation. He's the word become flesh. Christ is the word of God lived out in the world. The incarnation functions as the personal revelation and best translation of God. Open your Bible to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. And John talks about this reality. And other other writers do as well, but John really, right at the top of his uh, gospel, just kind of nails it. He said this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, he gave them the right or the power to be the children of God. To, lo- to those who believe in his name. Those who are born, not of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. Indeed, we have all received grace, Upon grace from his fullness. What is that saying? It's saying Jesus gave us what we couldn't get from this. We had this. We had this. We had the grace of the word. The Old Testament. We had, we had the law. We had grace. And Jesus came and he gave us grace upon grace. Because we knew him in his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. No one has ever seen God. The one and only son who is himself God is at the father's side. He has revealed him. So what was unknowable before in the person, in the translation of the incarnation of Christ, we can now get. It's like taking a text that's in a totally different context and a different language and making it our own, making it English, making it plain. That's what Jesus does. For millennia, people wondered at the amazing hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt. I took that picture just a few months ago. I mean, it's just crazy to have entire tombs 
just covered with this. Now, if I could give you a comparison, the characters on that are probably about that big each. So that's blown up quite a bit. Just cover the walls. People are like, what in the world were they doing? They were completely unable to comprehend their meaning. All that changed with an irregular-shaped stone of black granite was found near the town of Rashid, Egypt, better known as Rosetta, Egypt. It was discovered by a Frenchman named Pierre Bucard in August 1799. And this is what the Rosetta Stone looks like. Okay, the Rosetta Stone was known, uh, uh, as we know it now, has the inscription composed by priests of Memphis, summarizing the donations given by Ptolemy V, and were written in two languages, Egyptian and Greek, employing three writing styles. At the top, you have hieroglyphic, which matches this picture. In the middle, you have what's called the demotic, uh, demotic script. It's kind of a cursive writing of the Egyptian hieroglyphics. And on the bottom, you have the Greek alphabet. It provided a key to translation of the Egyptian hieroglyphic writing. Once the key was deciphered, Egyptology took a giant leap forward in their understanding of how ancient Egyptians lived, worked, and worshipped. Without this, guys, they would still be in the dark as to what this writing meant. Now, there is, there is so much rich history and knowledge hidden in this. But they couldn't know it or understand it until they got this. I mean, it's been sitting there for thousands of years, and they've been looking at it going, I have no idea. But when the Rosetta Stone was found, it was the key to unlock all of this knowledge that they previously had no understanding of. God does something similar in his communication with us in and through the incarnation of Christ. Jesus is the key to knowing the previously unknowable. God said, no, no, nobody has ever seen God. But then Jesus comes along. He is the best. Translation. The actions, stories, and teachings of Jesus help us better understand and contextualize what the scriptures say about God from cover to cover. We've been studying the book of Colossians, and there's a great part in here that I want to read to you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says this. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Sounds a lot like John, doesn't it? He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Verse 19 is big. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. He is the translation. 
and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Bible, through the key of the living word, Jesus, is a means to knowing God himself. Let me read that again. The Bible, through the key of the living word, which is Jesus Christ, is a means to knowing God himself. So we're going to talk about it in a few, few. How does the Old Testament, that's written for the Jewish people, right? That's, how does that relate to the New Testament? The key to that answer is Jesus. And I'll show you how you can use the key of the incarnated Christ to decipher everything throughout the Bible. I'm not going to say it's easy. It's not like, oh, duh. You have to actually use it. But, I mean, the person of Jesus opens, is the Rosetta Stone for understanding God. So, as we move into our week, let me just ask this question. Why do we read and study the Bible? Why do we read and study the Bible? Why do you care what somebody wrote 2,000 years and more ago? Why do you care? The goal of personal devotions, we call that, that's, how we, that's what we call our, our, our time of, of studying the word, reading the word, reading a devotional book, trying to understand what the Bible is saying. The goal of personal devotions is to grow in our relationship and love for God. If you're reading the Bible to find out what somebody said 5,000 years ago, you're reading it for the wrong purpose. Go read the Iliad. Who cares? Read a book that's old. But if you are reading the Bible to find out how to love, know, and align your, your heart and life with the God of the universe, then you're in good place. That's why we read the Bible. Because we believe it's God's word. It is, impo- it, uh, it is possible to possess great knowledge of the Bible but still lack the redemptive relationship with the God of the universe. People have made their careers off of that. There are Christian college professors who know a lot about the word of God, yet they will deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Good luck with that, man. You just wasted your life. It's, it's possible to possess intellectual knowledge of God through Bible study without transform, transformative knowledge of God through a living, breathing relationship. In addition, if we want to know who God is and what Christianity teaches, we should look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to get into this in the next week, next week but he, Jesus, he said, listen, I didn't come to throw that old thing away. I came to show you why it's important. And what I, I've come to fulfill it. We'll, we'll talk about that. But it's, it's, it's remarkable. And I don't want to stamp on next week's sermon. Um, come next week. All right. Um, Jesus is the self-revealed uh, revelation of God himself. All Bible studies should re- revolve around Jesus. If you're reading the Genesis to uh, Matthew to Revelations, 
it should all revolve around the person of Jesus. It should revolve around him, lead to him, and end with Jesus. John 14, 6 says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's a big statement. That's the kind of statement that gets somebody crucified. I'm not joking. People say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Um, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did, right there. See, Jesus is the key to translating God's will, truth, and life into our lives. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says this. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to his son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. Sounds a lot like John 1, doesn't it? The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. That's why from Genesis to Revelations, the rubrics that you should use to understanding the Scriptures is the Rosetta Stone of Jesus Christ. John 8.32 says this, Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, in this context of this message, I just think it, I have to go back to that Rosetta Stone con concept. They were living in darkness to all this information. And then one key translated freed them from their ignorance. Freed them from their ignorance. Now they could, now they could decipher. They could go through every single tomb that they've ever seen, and, and they could take those, those little weird writings and understand them. They were free now from their ignorance. Jesus says, know the truth. And he said, what did he say? I am the way. I am the truth. Know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Free from, yes, free from death, free from sin, all those things. But also free from the ignorance of not understanding this. He is the key. Knowing Jesus. Jesus is that Rosetta Stone. The key to knowing God. Knowing Jesus will open up a whole new world of endless possibilities. He truly will set you free. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we've had today to, to study a little bit. To think a little higher about your amazing words. God, and I know that this leather-bound book I hold in my hand is a translation of a copy of the original. But Lord, you have so preserved your word through the millennia that it's amazing that we could even possibly, at this point in our lives, understand the fullness of what you wanted to teach. Lord, I thank you for the Rosetta Stone of Jesus Christ. Today, we're, we're just talking about having an ability to understand your heart, your mind. But he did so much more than that. In his crucifixion, in his resurrection, in his sacrifice, he freed us from the bondage of sin and 
death. But today, Lord, we're so thankful that he's also freed us to understand the very heart of God. So, Lord, as we hold this word of God as valuable to our lives in the present age, God, I pray through your Holy Spirit, person of of Jesus Christ, that we would have our hearts and minds illuminated so that we can live the life that you've called us to. We can be close to your heart. Be with my brothers and sisters as they go into this week. Lord, I pray that this was a good 30-second time out for them. Lord, they're going to hit the court bright and early tomorrow morning. Help them get in the game. Amen. God bless. Have an awesome week. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. To find out more about New Life Church or to plan a visit, go to our website at discovernewlife.org.